Psalm 121 says, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer your foot to be moved. He that keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he that keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade upon your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will preserve you from all evil. He will preserve your soul. The Lord will preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. Lamentations 3.22 It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good to them that wait for him, for the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Good day. I want to talk about posture and what it means to be a son or a daughter of God during times that are somewhat turbulent. I want to make a point that I use the word turbulent instead of something earth-shattering. I think what we're going through from a historical perspective is turbulence. It's like the shadow of a really hard time, but not maybe a really hard time when you look at history. I think sometimes we can become pretty egocentric in the way that we look at history and we look at where we're at in this world. But the honest truth is, is that, that this has been a tough time globally, but it's not an earth-shattering time. It's not without precedent. It's not something that is, is dark beyond belief. It's just challenging. It's turbulent. And it's somewhat uncertain. And so when I look at this time, I ask God, I say, okay, so we're here, not by choice of our own. How do we deal with this? What kind of posture am I called to take? What does this look like? It becomes murkier when you, if you spend any time on social media. I'm fortunate that I'm not on social media, but people in my household are, and so every once in a while I'll look over their shoulder, and some of the conversations going on are somewhat disturbing, and there's a certain level of frustration that enters my soul when I read some of this stuff. And I ask myself, I'm like, where is this frustration coming from? And what is our posture during these times? I had a friend ask me that question a little while ago. And I spent a while thinking about it, praying about it. And I took, I took a day to answer him. And, and my answer was like this. Point number one, our fight now, just like yesterday, just like the day before yesterday, just like last year, just like the year before that, is not against flesh and blood. If you read through Ephesians 6, it's pretty clear. Is that our fight isn't against flesh and blood. It's not where our fight belongs. Our fight is a spiritual fight. That hasn't changed. It hasn't changed today, and it's not going to change tomorrow. The second point that I want to speak to today is that we are all made in the image of God. It's maybe an obvious point, but I feel like a lot of the conversations that we have these days, we tend to forget that the person with an alternate view from what we have is also made in the image of God. There's left wing and there's right wing. 
There's conservative and there's liberal. There's a lot of different thought patterns that we can go down these days. And the interesting thing about it is that there's inconsistencies in each of these thought patterns. But we tend to see our thought pattern as being the one that's perfectly consistent and perfectly in line with logic. And so we have these battles. And this is the kind of landscape that we find ourselves in. As I was contemplating this, it's interesting because in the series that we've been going through at church here, we've been looking at the life of Nehemiah. And I want to go to someone whose life was similar just a little bit earlier to Nehemiah. Some people think that there's a chance that Daniel and Nehemiah actually met each other. I don't necessarily think there's any proof for that. But they, were, they may have been contemporaries at the very tail end of Daniel's life. However, it's, these are characters that had many of the same attributes. And I want to go to the book of Daniel, and I want to take some lessons from that. Let's study it together. I don't, I don't ask you guys to agree with everything that I'm going to say today. I don't think that, that I have the complete corner on, on what makes sense uh, and what, what this message is to us, but I want to present some thoughts for, for us to contemplate and to think about and perhaps give us some posture that's needed during this day and this age. A brief overview of the story of Daniel. You can find it in the book of Daniel from chapters 1 to chapter 6. And there's, there's a lot more that goes on in Daniel when it comes to the prophetic stuff in the later part of the book. But the first six, cha- six chapters basically deal with the history and the story. And, and I'm one of these people, so I work with my hands. I, I, uh, I spend my time pounding nails. And I'm a fairly simplistic thinking person. I, I like to think, and I like to think in, um, things through. Maybe it's, at times I'm an overthinker, but fairly simplistic. So I'm not one of those guys that reads Hebrew. I'm not one of those guys that, that goes into some of the really, really deep pieces of Scripture and digs it apart. And I'm glad that there are people who do that. It's just not me. When I read a story in Scripture, what I do is I, I look at the story and then I ask God, what are you actually saying to me through this story? What is the relevant piece here? How can I get a piece of your heart through what you're saying through your word? So that's my approach, and that's how I look at it. And, and I apologize if it's overly simplistic. But I think, and, and particularly when you deal with something like the life of Daniel, it's multi-layered. So there's a lot that can be learned through one single story. And I'm not going to say that what we're going to look at today is going to cover all those different layers. But there are a couple layers that I want to peel back. The story in a nutshell is that Israel's overtaken by a foreign power, by the power of the day, by the, by the toughest guys out there in the day. And, and when, a, when a kingdom is overtaken, it's never pretty. There's always a lot of ugliness involved, and, and it's turmoil, and it's crazy. People get hauled away in chains to this other country. They're no longer people in their own home. And, and who knows who's all died around them? Who knows who all has been affected in a really adverse way? Who knows what all they've seen and whatever kind of scars are in their head from this, this military takeover? There's a lot going on. In this story, it focuses particularly on Daniel, but also on his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so it's, it's interesting because as a kid, this is a great story because the names are cool. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, my dad used to say, to bed we go, because it was a good way to end the story at night. Um, but but these, are, these are interesting characters. These are real guys that, that went through real turmoil. When they get to the foreign country, they're put through a series of tests to find out who of these people is worth promoting within the foreign power. 
and, and who are basically, you know, I'm not sure what they did with the guys that, that weren't promoted. But anyways, these four young men were wise. And that, the Bible is very clear on. These guys were smart. They were astute. They were well-versed in a lot of different things, although they were fairly young guys. They were guys that, that I guess Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the day, and that's another cool name, Nebuchadnezzar. I, I wouldn't name one of my kids that, but I think it's, it's funky. The, these guys caught the attention of this most powerful king, and they're preserved, their lives are spared, and they're actually put into basically a place where they will become valuable in the kingdom. That's the uh, intent. So they can be trained up by Nebuchadnezzar and his guys to become one of them, to become one of the foreign powers. To give advice, to do things that smart people do. This is, this is the place that they're in. What they do is immediately they're confronted by a whole series of things that do not go down well with them. And one of them is very simple. The stuff that they're asked to eat is not something that they're willing to eat. It's not something that they understand. They're, they're asked to eat really rich food, a lot of wine, a lot of stuff that in their tradition, in following God and their understanding of who they are meant to be in God, is just not allowed. So it's interesting because right off the bat, they do something that's slightly different. Rather than kicking and screaming and trying to make a point, these guys go, I think, fairly respectfully and say, hey, look, you know what? We're not super comfortable with what you guys are asking us to do here. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask that you give us 10 days to eat the food, the simple food that we were brought up with. And if at the end of 10 days you don't like what you see, we're going to just eat whatever you put before us. But if after 10 days you like what you see, then we're going we're gonna to change and we're going to ask that you respect that. And that's what we're going to eat. This is one story that comes. The next story that comes in there is the king has a dream, forgets the dream, knows it was important, asks all his guys, says, what was my dream and what's the interpretation? They're like, well, that's not fair. You can't give an interpretation to a dream we don't know. Daniel comes through, God shows him the dream, and he's able to speak into the king's life. Next, next major story that happens is that these guys are challenged. There, there is a, a massive idol that's set up, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, made of gold in the image of the king. And everyone's asked in the kingdom to bow down to this idol. One of the final main stories... Is, and this is, and I'm going to start here and kind of work my way backwards somewhat. Daniel's a pretty old man. He's serving not just Nebuchadnezzar, but multiple kings after Nebuchadnezzar. And every person that comes to the throne or takes over, wherever he is, he basically rises to the top. The guy's smart. The guy knows how to organize things. The guy knows how to be in charge of people. King Darius, who's in charge at this point near the end of the story of Daniel. And I think, according to, to historians, we're talking about a guy who's maybe, I mean, he's, he's old, maybe 80-ish, maybe a little bit more. He's, he's an older man at this point. He's at the top, right underneath King Darius. And he's the guy that people look to. He's basically without flaws. The guy is very circumspect. He's very careful about how he handles himself. He handles himself like a true statesman. He's not a yeller. He's not a screamer. He's not a guy that gets all bent out of shape over all kinds of superfluous stuff. 
He's a guy that is extremely principled. While all of these other guys that are serving underneath him, these princes and these guys with power, get bent out of shape because Daniel is over top of them. And they know his history. They know that he was a kid that should have basically been a slave making bricks because he came out of Israel, out of Judah, and they knew where he came from. And yet here was this guy. He was actually had power over top of them. So they looked for a way that they could trip him up. And they realized after studying him for a while that the only way they could do that is if they could find somehow to trip him up because of his faith. Every day, he would go in front of his window and he'd pray to God. It was not something that he kept private. It was something that he was very open about his belief and who he was. So these guys got the king of the day, King Darius, to make a decree to say that you could only pray to the king. And the interesting thing is King Darius loved Daniel. And it's very clear in scripture. Like this guy, this guy was well loved by the king. He didn't, the king did not realize this was a trap. And when the, when the guys came running back to the king to tell him, hey, we just saw Daniel. He wasn't praying to you. He was praying to his God like normal. As soon as King Darius heard this, he's like, oh, man. He's like, I've been trapped. And there was no way that he could go against his decree. So Darius has to drop this guy into a lion's den. That was supposed to be the punishment for not obeying this ruling. Daniel gets dropped down into the lion's den, spends the night down there with the lions. In the morning, King Darius runs, opens it up, yells down. He says, is the God who you serve able to deliver you? Daniel calls back up and he says, yeah, yeah, I'm here. But the first thing he says before he says anything, he says, oh, king, live forever. Here's a guy who spent his life serving foreign powers, serving people who did not believe in the God who he believed in, who did not serve God the way that he served God. And yet here he is yelling up at the guy who, by his own decree, put him down into this lion's den. And he yells up and says, oh, king, live forever. It's the first response out of his mouth. Think about the square shoulders that this guy has. Think about the posture that this guy has. This is, he's not yelling and screaming and saying, what were you thinking? How could you not see that this was a plot? There was no kind of, he wasn't, there was no vengeance in his voice. He genuinely yells up and says, oh yeah, my God, he saved me. And King, live forever. I respect you and I honor you despite this craziness. How does a guy come to that position? How is a guy able to override his flesh to the place where he understands that what his goal is, is to be obedient to God. And in that obedience comes a backbone and a posture that defies description. How do you get there? I will tell you, it is through a series of decisions that are consistent, that have to do with obedience and not with pleasing your own flesh. It's through a series of decisions that says, I fear but I fear God. I don't fear man. I don't fear what man can do to me. Through a series of decisions that says, I'm willing to respect 
the people around me despite their beliefs, despite the things that I disagree with. I'm able to put that aside and show respect, but not cave to the same standards. Not demote myself to that same craziness. We tend to focus on the flesh, and there's a good reason for that. We were born in this stuff. This is the stuff that's right in front of our eyes. The other day, I was, I was switching out an accessory on my tractor. I'm trying hard to become a farmer, and, and honestly, like I've got farming in my blood, but I, <clears throat> it's, it's a long road to become a good farmer. I was switching out some machines, some accessories, and, and there was a spring that was loaded. And usually when I do this stuff, I do it with my 13-year-old boy because he's a lot smarter mechanically than me. And so we, we do things together. And, but this time, he was busy somewhere doing something, so I decided to do it on my own. And as I was, like, taking this one accessory off, a spring released and just came down on my thumb. And there was some instant pain there. There was thoughts of some, some foul thoughts that came through my head. And, and, uh, but I, I continued to switch out the machine, and then all of a sudden I took a look, and I'm like, oh, I was missing the top of my thumb. And I'm like... And, and suddenly my flesh became very important. It wasn't like number one, number two, or number three. It was all of the above. And I was like, I went a bit white in the face and walked up to the house and had to get bandaged up. But our flesh knows how to take priority. Our flesh knows how to get our attention. Our flesh knows how to keep our attention. The problem is our flesh is not the most important thing going. So these days, it's easy to be frustrated with stuff that we hear and see with our eyes. But the point is, is that we're not fighting against things that we can see and feel and touch. This is not where our fight is. Our fight is elsewhere. So when, when we take a look from this perspective, it changes the way we're postured. It changes the way that we're able to talk to the people around us. I want to take a look at the story of the fiery furnace. So here, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this massive gold idol. And he's asking everybody in his known world to bow down to this idol. We don't know exactly where Daniel is in this story, but clearly he wasn't in the same position as his three buddies. Because if he was, he would have acted exactly in the same way. So in this, in this story, here's this guy, and he is he's demanding everyone to bow down to him. Now... This is no longer about respect. This is no longer just a flesh issue. Can you see the difference? This has now become a spiritual issue. Because who you bow your knee to is entirely different than showing respect on a day-to-day -day basis. It's an entirely different discussion. When the boys don't bow, Nebuchadnezzar gets furious. He's like, there's three people in this whole crowd that aren't bowing. So he gives them another chance. They still don't bow. Comes to a place where he drags them out in front of him and so that they can explain themselves. And they look at him and they say, you know what? Like, you can play the music as many times as you want. You can ask this as many times as you want. But here's the deal. Is that we have a posture. We have a belief that we're not supposed to bow to anyone but our God. This is found in Daniel chapter 3. Mm -hmm. 
He's furious. He makes the, the fiery furnace as the punishment hotter than ever. He tosses these guys in. But it's interesting. Before they go in, they say, our God can deliver us. They had perfect faith about this. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, if we burn, we burn. It's okay because this is our decision. This is what obedience looks like. So when I read this story as a kid or when I heard it, I really thought it was a lot about faith. It's like they had faith that God was going to deliver them. But as I'm reading it as I get older, I'm not convinced it was so much. It was based on faith. There was a background of faith here. But you know what it looks like to me? It just looks like flat-out obedience. It looks like discipline, posture, and obedience. Saying, look, this is who we are. And this is what we're going to do. And we know our God is huge. We know he's got the power to save us. But if he chooses not to, if his design for me is something other than that, it's okay. As I was reading this story, it reminded me of another story in Acts. There was a guy named Stephen. And, and this guy, he was one of the apostles. In, in Acts chapter 6, in verse 8, it says, Stephen was full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Going down to verse 10. And they were not able to resist. The people around him were not able to resist the spirit by which he spake. Then they got men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. It's a similar place. It's a similar type of thing. So what does Stephen do? It's a great, great story that he, he, he gives, like, basically the whole gospel story from beginning through to where he was at. He says it with posture. He says it with maybe a certain level of defiance, saying, this is who I am. This is what I believe, and this is worth whatever outcome is going to come out of this. I feel like it was very much the same type of posture that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, that Daniel had throughout his life. It's a posture that says, I understand what you're trying to do to me, but it will not affect my actions. I understand that there is a spiritual battle going on that wants to destroy me, but it's not going to stop what I'm going to do. After he's done speaking, this is what it says in, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. I'm not sure what that's saying, but that sounds intense. And he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul, which later became Paul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, 
he fell asleep. So to me, this is kind of like the same story. This is someone laying it right out there, doing what he is, feels he's called to do. The outcome is very different. His flesh is no more. Whereas these other guys, they went and were cast into the fiery furnace. And as people were watching, they saw not only did these guys not fall down, there was a fourth person that they saw walking around in the fire that looked like the Son of God. Was God not powerful enough to save Stephen as well? Is he not the same God? Here's the thing, guys. We value our flesh so much that we tend to think that somehow God made a mistake with Stephen and did the right thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I like Cam Chowan, my buddy. Well, I like him. I also like something that he says a lot these days, which is that he feels like God is playing a multi-level chessboard where there's pieces, but there's, pe- there's layers upon layers upon layers of chess so that the average person, no matter how good we are at the game, we can't figure it out. We can't go there because there's just too many... One move affects too many things. God knows the beginning from the end. We have to trust this. We have to believe that God has our best in mind. But our best is not always what we see. Because we focus on the flesh. We focus on the thumb that's bleeding. That's just what we do. We find it hard to understand that the big game that's going on is in the spirit. So therefore, we yell and scream on social media. We say things that we actually shouldn't be saying in attitudes and in the way that is disrespectful and not honoring to God, people, or anyone around us, or least of all ourselves. And yet we do this and we justify it thinking we've got to stand up for what's right. We do have to stand up for what's right. But how do we do that? What is the way that we do that? We fight in the spirit. We show respect to the people who may not have the same opinions as us. We will have discourse and dialogue in a way that it has dignity, like statesmen. But if we're going to fight, guys, we're going to fight in the spirit because that's where the real work is done. The spirit is the stuff that we struggle so hard to see. But if we want the church to be something glorious, if we want our own lives to have some significance above just surviving, then our fight's got to be in the spirit. And we've got to fight in a way that is absolutely relentless. Absolutely relentless. We can't stop just because it gets uncomfortable. We can't stop just because we're not 100% sure what tomorrow holds you know what we're never sure what tomorrow holds but just now it's more obvious right you ask someone for their six-year or five-year business plan right now and they'll just smile at you and be like yeah why yeah what do you want from me but you know what honestly we don't know in the best of times we have no idea what tomorrow holds which is why we want to live lives that are consistent with what we believe I've said this for a long time, and I'll keep saying this, is that I don't envy any man who has less faith than I. I aspire 
And the people that I, I find are, become my heroes increasingly as I get older are guys that have more significant faith, deeper faith, that understand what it means to follow God with consistency year after year despite what the circumstances throw at us. It's interesting because I started with saying, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. That help comes yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God gives us the strength to fight in the spirit and to be dignified and respectful in the flesh. We're called the children of God. If there's a time to yell and scream, you better be sure that you're hearing the voice of God very clearly about what to yell and what to scream. Because I believe that for the most part, we're called to fight in the spirit and be respectful in the flesh. This is what we're called to be. And if we can posture ourselves and if we can look at people with opposing views to ours during these days and recognize, number one, that there may be a shred of truth or maybe more truth than we want to admit in their views. Number two, that even if their views are crazy, they are still created in the image of God. And there might be something that God is trying to say to you through someone who you are trying hard to respect but not succeeding. There might be something about your own view that needs to be checked. Is that all right? We do this? Let's pray. God, we're always seriously humbled when we think about your faithfulness, when we think about how that you have time to care about us, how you value us despite the fact that we have so little to offer in so many ways. But we're thankful that as your sons and daughters that, that you don't request more than what we can do. What you request is obedience. And in that obedience that we can find joy, God. That we can find purpose. We can find consistency. We can find a path to walk on, Jesus, despite how uncertain times may be. We give you glory, Jesus, for this. And I ask for, for each person in this building, for each person that's watching online, God, I pray that these would be days where our faith would be strengthened where we would recognize something so special between you and us, that we would learn to hear your voice with more clarity, that we would learn to be obedient more quickly, and that we would recognize the significance of the Spirit and the insignificance of the flesh, God. We ask that you would be glorified and honored in our lives, Jesus, and we thank you for that in your name.